Alright, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read to you verses 8 through 22. And for those of you that have been around enough to know, we hope to cover all these verses. We may or we may not. And I'm going to lean toward may not, to be honest with you. So just to give you a heads up. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Peter says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Now, as you can see, we have a lot to cover tonight. And again, we may not get it all in, but one thing... I want you to understand is that when we get to chapter 3, verses 18 and following, this has been one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture. To be really honest with you, it's just this Jesus preaching through the Spirit to the spirits in prison. Who is that? When did that happen? And we're hopefully, Lord willing, time-wise, going to get to that tonight. But let's deal with this first word. It makes me chuckle. Finally, he says... And if you look closely and turn your Bible pages, you'll know he goes on for two more chapters. Three more, if you count the one he's in right now. Two and a half at least. Just to sum up. Yeah, to sum up. I love this, by the way. Um, because Peter is beginning to wrap up his instruction to everyone. And in doing so, he says, finally, I've done this too. And I understand it. As a preacher, as a person who's called by God to communicate his word, I understand what Peter's doing here. What he's, what he's doing is, it's, he's alerting the hearers to the fact that I'm going somewhere, is what he's saying. In other words, I've been giving you all these instructions and to slaves and to husbands and to wives. And, and what I'm about to say to you is going to seem like another rabbit trail. It's not. This is all tied together, is what he's saying. So when he says, finally, he's saying, this is all tied together and I'm going somewhere, so stick with me. And you've heard me say it many times as I've taught or preached. I've said, stick with me, I'm going somewhere, hang on. Because I know at times as you lay the foundation, and as you continue to, 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 to delve into the depths of God's Word, you could easily get that sense of, where are we, is he going to get to the point? Are we going to get there? Peter is wanting to make sure his hearers understand 
This has all been tied together for a reason. And, and please hear this, because when we get to this mostly debated passage, you're going to find that the context is going to unlock it, and it's going to become very clear. Alright? So, he's just saying, this is all tied together here, so stick with me. But as I tie this all together, and I get to the last section of what I'm tying together, he then gives us six instructions. And what I want to do is not just skim over them tonight. A lot of times we may do that. But I just really felt like for tonight, God wanted us to take a look at each of these six instructions that He gives us. And just I'm going to show you one place or two, depending on time, where I can show you that Jesus lived this way Himself. And I think it will just be an encouragement to us. So the first thing He says to His hearers is, live in harmony with each other. So put a bookmark here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and let's go to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 56, we'll see Jesus live this out. Luke 9, starting in verse 46, says an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Here we see a wonderful little pattern here of Jesus living in harmony with the people around Him. He actually had this situation where they said, Hey, we saw some people preaching in your name. They're not one of us. Jesus said, If they're not against you, they're for you. You know, a lot of times Christians spend too much time trying to build themselves up by tearing others in the body down. Are we all going to agree on interpretations of everything in the Bible? No, the Bible is very clear that there will be disagreements. Romans 14 is all about that. Some are going to consider one day more sacred than another. Another person is going to consider every day alike. One's going to think eating vegetables is the way to go. Another one thinks meat's okay. And there's going to be debates. There's going to be times when we don't see it the same. And Romans 14, God says to us, don't look down on your brother. Don't judge your brother. Because each of us are going to stand before God one day for how we took His word. And so don't spend your time saying, well, that person doesn't see it like I see it. If they're not against you, they're for you. We have brothers and sisters in other denominations and other walks who are in Christ. Please hear me. In Christ. We've already dealt with that a few weeks ago when I talked to you. Anybody that doesn't believe that God Himself is Jesus. Jesus is God Himself. That's not a Christian. I don't care if you call yourself Christian, if you think Jesus is the Son of God, or you say Jesus is an emanation of God, or if you just think Jesus is one of the gods, they're not a Christian. But if they understand that Jesus is God Himself who came in the flesh, that person's a born-again believer. They're a child of God. Now listen, though. One of the greatest evidences of the fact that Jesus is in us is that we can get along when we don't always see it the same way. You know, uh, hopefully you've heard me and Duke wrestle over stuff over the years. You know, and I can't wait to get to heaven so I can say I told you so for an eternity. Or apologize, yeah. I'll throw that in. 
recording or paint his house. But at the same time, what I want you to hear is this. Jesus' instructions through Peter to us is, live in harmony with each other, folks. Live in harmony with each other. And you're going to see why. Because in this other situation in, in, in Luke, you'll see that as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem and He sent some people ahead to make preparations, you know, you know, you travel, you're going to make hotel reservations or whatever. As they went to make preparations for His travel through Samaria, they found out He was going to Jerusalem and they didn't want Him. And James and John are like, let's bring judgment right now. And Jesus says, don't worry about it, you guys are the ones in the wrong right now. Now they might have done wrong by not welcoming me, But whose job is it to judge? Whose ultimate job is it to repay? It's God's. So live in harmony. I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, so please hear this in love. Get over yourself. I'm going to say it again. Get over yourself. Stop thinking that you've got it all figured out. Stop thinking that you're smarter than others because you see it this way and they don't see it the way you see it. Live in harmony with each other. Jesus, who was God and could have won every argument, did not always argue. And actually, He didn't argue much at all. The next thing He says in 1 Peter chapter 3 is, is be sympathetic. Go to John 11, you'll see Jesus being sympathetic. Now, for those of you that know me, if you get sympathy from me, you know Jesus did it. My wife didn't. My wife has not amened in a long time, but we know she's listening. But here's the thing: I want you to hear, though. I can't just say, "Well, it's just not my gift." This is instruction to all of us. This is Luke chapter. I'm sorry, John chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. In the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, look what it says, starting in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary. And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus wept. The Jews said, see how he loved him. Did Jesus know the Lazarus was going to come back from the dead? Of course he did. He had already said the sickness is going to end in death. But he still had sympathy. There's a tendency at times for us as Christians trying to be men and women of faith to come along somebody and say, God's in control, buck up! But sometimes we just need to cry with them and then encourage them in who God is. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Now we're not going to turn there, but in John 13, 34 and 35, what did Jesus say? By this all men will know that you are my brothers, by your love one for another. And verse 34 says... A new command I give you. Love each other as I have loved you. Love as brothers. By the way, do brothers always agree? No. No. My brother is actually here. My brother is here. I told you they came back from Thailand. Actually, Jeff's here. His wife and one of his daughters is back at the house. And his other daughter, Alyssa's here. Do brothers always agree? Do family always get along? Then why do you stay together? Because you're family. In the same way, because of Jesus Christ, we need to love as brothers. And in those times we don't see it the same way, we need to live in harmony with each other, we need to be sympathetic, and we need to love as brothers. But he also says, be compassionate here in this passage. Go with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34.
Matthew 20, starting in verse 29, As Jesus and His disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called to them, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, We want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed Him. Now, this is a tough one in some sense because I don't believe the Bible teaches that we're supposed to meet every need we see. There are those that say, if you see a need, that's God telling you you're supposed to need it, meet it. I, I can't go there because Jesus saw lots of needs. He couldn't, well, He could, but He chose not to meet them all. But let me just ask you a question. As your relationship with Christ becomes so inward focused that you don't sense the needs of people around you? Hmm? It's supposed to be the opposite. When you're truly growing in your relationship with Christ, you will all of a sudden start to have the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, and you will see people and have compassion on them. Uh, the struggle you may have is, I want to meet all the needs that I see and I can't. Nor I'm just encouraging you. Don't worry about it. You weren't supposed to. But God will help you. But let me just say real quickly, for those of you that have wrestled over the years with whether or not you were supposed to help somebody pulled off on the side of the road, there's a big difference between hearing I ought to or I should versus the Lord saying, do it. Do you understand? Because a lot of us have listened to the enemy thinking that it was God. Well, the right thing to do would probably be to pull over and help that person. As a Christian, I ought to help them. I should. That's not God talking. Because when your father talks to you, he doesn't say, you ought to, you should. He'll say, do it. And you'll know the difference. When you sense and hear him say, pull over, that's when he's telling you to do it. If you're wrestling with, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, I'm going to just suggest to you there's a strong chance God didn't tell you to pull over. Now again, there will be people out there that will say, uh-uh, I think that we need... Well, that's what you think. I'm just going to stick with what the Scripture says and show you Jesus saw lots of needs. He didn't meet them all. And as Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father doing. I'm only doing what He leads me to do. And I'll act when He leads me to act. If you say, well, if you see a need, you're supposed to meet it. Uh-uh. That's not what the Bible teaches. Alright? Now, it also says be humble. Now, we're not going to turn there because we've used this passage a bunch in our study. But let me just, if you're writing your notes down, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through 8. Let this mind be also in you, which was also in Christ. You know what I'm talking about. Who, when Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not consider himself, equality with God something to be grasped, but He what? He humbled Himself and He made Himself a servant. He humbled Himself even to death, and of all things, death on a cross. We need to be humble. The sixth thing He says in this passage here is that we're not to repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Back in 1 Peter, you'll see in chapter 2, we already saw this in verse 23, when they hurled their insults at Him, meaning Jesus, He did not retaliate, and when He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. Now, please pay close attention, because as we get to that part that everybody wants to wrestle over, God has been giving us the answer all along as to what the interpretation of that passage is. 
And so here he says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. In Matthew chapter 11, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time as well. In verses 1 through 11, we see John the Baptist sitting in a dungeon and he's starting to doubt whether Jesus is the one. The same one who said, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is now saying, are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? The same one who said, I wouldn't have known who he was except the one who sent me to baptize told me. The one in whom you see the Spirit of God come down on, on, that's the one. Baptize him. That same guy is saying, are you the one or should we look for someone else? The same one who said, he must increase and I must decrease. The same one who said, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. That one that knew who he was is at a time in his life really having it rough. And things aren't going like he thought they would. And Jesus is not looking like the Messiah he thought he was going to be. He didn't understand that he had to come and be the suffering servant first. He is the Messiah. But he wasn't acting in the way that John the Baptist expected him to act. And when John's having his lowest time, Jesus sends a message through John's disciples back to him and tell him everything's right on schedule. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. And you can go back and look at this story. You'll see it. Because in the context you'll see that Jesus was standing there teaching a group of people when John's disciples came up and asked the question in front of all those people. And now all of a sudden, John the Baptist, who had been revered, has been overheard in front of all these people saying, Are you the one? And so after he sends message back to John and says, Everything's right on schedule. Blessed are those who don't fall away on account of me. He then turns back to the crowd and he knows that John the Baptist has looked wishy-washy. And he says, let me ask you a question. When you went out into the desert, who did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? No, you went out to see a prophet. And let me tell you, of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. When John said the lowest thing he ever said about Jesus, Jesus said the greatest thing he ever said about John. When John was saying, I'm not even sure you're for real. Jesus gave the greatest blessing He ever could. Oh, don't just do good by holding your tongue. Bless them. And we're all sitting here going, I can't do that. Good. You're not supposed to. But Jesus wants to do it through you. And you're to walk in obedience to what He said, believing that Jesus will be the one who does it. You cannot live the Christian life. It's only been lived by one person. Jesus already lived it, but He wants to live it again through you and through me. So you have to first say, I can't do this. And then God says, good, now go do it. And believe that I'll do it through you. Now, go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at what it says here in verse uh, 10. Actually, the end of verse 9, it says, Don't repay evil for evil, or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. I mean, God promises a blessing for those who will live in the manner in which we've just looked at in these six things. And then he quotes from Psalm 34, verses 11 through 19. And he says, actually, 34, verses 11 and following, he doesn't get as far again, as far as verse 19, but... Look at what he says. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I touched on this, actually taught on it in great detail this afternoon with the Men in Motion guys. But I just wanted to say to you real quickly, the Bible teaches that your Heavenly Father is good. 
Earlier in Psalm 34, starting in verse 8, David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear God, you His saints. Now it's interesting that he would go in the midst of saying God is good to say fear God. We don't usually hear fear and good in the same category. But actually what he's saying is this, Your heavenly Father is a good Father. And everything He has for you is good. Run to Him. If you want to live for yourself, you're still His child. He still loves you. But you're going to miss out on what? His blessings. There have been times as an earthly father, and I'm pretty generous when it comes to my kids, and if I had more money, they'd be spoiled. Maybe that's why God doesn't have me have any more money. But the thing is this, I want to give good gifts to my kids. I really do. But there are times as a father that I know it's not best when they have not been obedient. I still want to give them. I don't have a heart that says, I don't want to give you anything, right? No, no, I still want to. But I know I can't. But if they've honored me, if they have been obedient, if they have listened to mom and dad, I just want to pour out the blessings. And this is what God says to you. Run to me. Do what I say. And you'll inherit a blessing because that's who I am. I'm a generous God. I'm a good God. Everything I have is yours. And I'm always with you. But you say, Jim, if you go on further in Psalm 34, you'll see that whoever is righteous lacks no good things. It says the righteous will have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Lord, what am I saying? Jim, you're saying the Lord says that I lack no good thing and it will deliver me from trouble. I've had lots of hard stuff going on in my life. If you're His child, you've got to believe this and you've got to hear me. Even those are good. Therefore, you're good. Remember Romans 8.28. He causes all things to work for the good. He'll take all stuff, even the trouble, and cause it to work for good. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. And I'm going to be obedient to Your Word because You're good. Yes, ma'am. That's true. We don't see it as good because it's painful in the process. Right. And we have automatically, especially in America, associated pain with bad. But oftentimes as Christians, when we look back on it, oh yeah, we can actually see As you look back, you can definitely see the good. It's in the middle of it. It's in the middle of it. All right. Now, let me just throw this out to you as well. When we feel the need to repay evil for evil or insult for insult, we're showing that we don't think God is good enough is a good enough judge, or that he's even watching. That's what you're really saying. I'm just going to get to the root of this. When you repay evil for evil, or insult for insult, what you're really saying is, I don't think God is a good enough judge, or that he may be even watching, and you might not get what you deserve, and I want to give you what I think you deserve. When you do that, you're actually speaking against God, who says, it is mine to repay. I will judge. We think that we need to take these matters into our own hands because we can do it better than God. Go to James chapter 4. Look at verses 11 and 12. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, 
the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that this contradicts Galatians 6.1 where it says if you see your brother in a fault, go to your brother for the purpose of restoration. This is not saying that we should not ever make any judgments. The Bible says that we are to measure people's fruit. Test their fruit. See whether or not they're false teachers or not. We are to make judgments. We're to examine everything and hold it up to the Scriptures. But at the same time, when we find that we find someone, we think someone is in error or someone is wrong, we have a tendency to make a judgment about them and sometimes we'll slander them. Especially, unfortunately, in our churches if they're on the other side of the issue that we're in debate over. There's a tendency to make judgments and slander. And here James says, don't, don't go there. Why? And you're going to see as we get further in this passage in 1 Peter why. But ultimately it's because we are saying that we don't trust God. If they're wrong, God knows. And if they've done wrong to you, God knows. But He might not deal with it. Oh, He'll deal with it. The Bible says He deals with all of it. But aren't you kind of glad that God's been merciful to you? Aren't you glad that He's just and at the same time gives forgiveness to you? How many times have you thought to yourself when someone blew by you on the highway and then a few miles down the road they're pulled over? <laughs> yeah. We're not supposed to do that. <laughs> We're not supposed to, but you have, haven't you? But how many times have you been going down the highway a little quicker than you should have and saw the police officer as you crested the hill and you didn't put on your brakes because you know that when you put on the brakes, the hood goes down. And that's, by the way, what the police officers look for. Because when you are going fast and you step on the brake, your hood goes down. They see your hood go down. They can't see your brake lights, but they know you're braking. And so you quickly come off the accelerator in hopes that the momentum will start to slow. And when you go by and they look in the rear view and they don't pull you over, you go, whoo. But we would love to say, yeah, that guy got it, but thank God I didn't. Isn't that sad? We want to determine who gets justice and who doesn't. We want to determine who gets mercy and who doesn't. When we do that, who are we putting our place, ourselves in the place of? God. Let it go. Should we call down fire? Relax, guys. You're the ones that are in the wrong. Well, they did wrong. Yeah, don't worry, God will take care of that. He'll judge all the thoughts and the motives of everyone's hearts. You'll actually find that you can sleep better at night when you're not worried about everybody else and whether or not they got what they deserve. The next verses, though, 13, in verses 13 through 17 here in chapter 3, it's important that we look closely at them because they form the context for the rest of the chapter, which I just said earlier is one of the most debated passages in all the Bible. Here in verses 13 through 17, Peter is still dealing with faithfulness to do good and the proper attitude in the face of suffering. Look back, all the way through, he's been dealing with suffering, and he's been talking about submission to authorities and so on. And you see at the heading of, head of verse 8, suffering for doing good. If you put if you look flip your page over to chapter 4 and you look at the headings that most of your Bibles have of verse 12 of chapter 4, suffering for being a Christian. Okay, all the way through. Peter is in a context here of telling the Christians in the midst of intense suffering and persecution, be faithful, do what is right, don't repay evil for evil, don't slander, just trust yourself to God. In the face of wickedness, be righteous. 
Right? Isn't that the context of what we're looking at here? If you grasp that, that will help you interpret this passage that has given people great pause for a long time. And he says to us there in, in verse 13, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to, do, eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. Well, what do they fear? What do other people fear? Man. They fear man. God says don't fear man. Fear God. Don't fear man, but fear God. In your hearts, set apart apart Christ as Lord. Now what this is saying is simply this. God is in control, not man. Even Satan, who has some power, has limited control. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world. Yes, but hopefully you understand. Any authority he has, has been allotted him, and it's limited. Who's actually controlling Satan? God. Erwin Lutzer, years ago at Moody Church, preached a wonderful sermon called God's Satan. He's a tool of the Father. Remember how Jesus said this? You would have no power over me unless it were given to you by my Father. Remember as Pilate stood there and said, Don't you realize I have the authority and the power to either set you free or to have you put to death? Jesus calmly had set apart the Father as Lord. He said, you don't have any power over me unless my Father gave it to me. I gave it to you. Ultimately, I'm resting in Him, not you. By the way, we've already talked about this earlier. Do you remember who was in charge at this time? Who was persecuting the Christians? Nero. You want to talk about a real hard time to hear God say, don't repay evil for evil. Live in harmony with one another. Love as brothers. Be compassionate. Sympathetic. Set in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Does it look like God's in control all the time? But He is. And we trust Him. Now with that in mind, He says, always be ready to give the reason for the hope within you. Now, I made a little sarcastic comment in my notes here. I said this, this is hard to do when people are having to calm you down because you're freaking out. Alright, I say this to you in love. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it will convict many of us. And I want the Spirit to convict you, not my little poll. How many of us have ever had anybody ask us to give reason for the hope within us? I mean... He didn't say once in a while that may occur. He said, always be ready. Because it's going to happen. If you live like this in this world, and you let Jesus live through you in this world, when trouble hits you like it hits everybody else, when the rain falls on the just and the unjust, when people are saying, how in the world are you handling that you've lost your job? I had two friends of mine who are in the space industry who in the last week have both told me that they've lost their jobs. My brother and his family are now in that place where they don't know what's going to happen next. And, and they're living in my house and they better figure it out quick. <laughs> Oh, it's God's house. That's right. Thank you. But you understand what I'm saying? In this world in which we are having stuff happen to us. Remember how it said in Psalm 34, the righteous will have many troubles, but the Lord delivers from them all. If you really believe that, you will have a peace and a joy and you can live in harmony and you can be sympathetic and you can comfort others with the comfort you've been receiving. But people will be saying, how in the world... With your IRA crashing like that, with you losing your job, with your family, with your wife getting cancer, how could you have this? 
How many of you have been asked that? It's kind of hard for them to ask us if they're having to calm us down because we're freaking out. If we look like everybody else. If we moan like everybody else. I've got to be real careful myself. And all that's going on, it's very easy for me to list all the stuff that we're having to deal with. And we do it so that we can get sympathy. We love sympathy, don't we? We don't want you to fix it even. We just want you to say, oh, you really have a really tough life. And we think to ourselves, yeah, someone's thinking I've got it tough. But we're afraid to have someone saying, you've got it good. You ever notice in the world, if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll know what I'm talking about. God might even bless you with a cruise. And you're afraid to tell your brothers and your sisters. Because they say this, Boy, it would be nice. Sure wish I got a cruise. And so we found it easier to live in this world among brothers and sisters in Christ to mope and say, hard things going, oh, busy. Hanging in there. I want to challenge you. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. You've been doing it, Ray. And it's showing. I know you have ups and downs. But ever since your husband died, we have seen what we're talking about here. And I just want to tell you, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for being that example. Folks, there's a joy that you cannot explain that only occurs in the midst of the suffering when you truly set apart Christ as Lord. He shows up in a way in which you could never have understood before. Paul says, I want to know Christ. The fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. That's when you get to know Christ. You don't get to know Christ by taking a Bible study course or a discipleship class. You have to be stripped of everything you've hung on to and find out that what the Bible has said all along, that He was all you needed. Stop running from the trouble. Embrace it. Say, Lord, You're using this to shape me and everything from Your hand is good. By the way, this sets us up for this passage that people have wrestled over. He said it's better if you see in this passage here, if it is God's will, for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is a key verse because it helps remind us of the context of Peter's writing as he goes into this section. Like I said, that has caused much confusion and debate. Peter, in describing Jesus' death and resurrection, seems to go off on a tangent. In talking of Jesus' spirit preaching to the spirits in prison, these spirits in prison seem somehow tied to the disobedience at the time of Noah. Let me read to you this section, and I'd like to have someone explain it to me. Alright? Look at verse 18. Right after he says, It's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to Him. We've got to be honest. We look at that and we say, okay, Peter, I've been with you. Where did you just go? 
Now, over the years, let me just tell you, theologians and scholars have wrestled over this passage, and there are three main interpretations of what he's saying here about Jesus' spirit preaching to the spirits in prison. One interpretation is that Jesus preached through Noah via the Holy Spirit back in Noah's day to the disobedient world. While Noah was building his ark, Jesus who has always been, you know, he didn't just exist when he was born. He's always been there because he's God. That a pre-incarnate Jesus through the Holy Spirit preached through Noah to the wicked people of his day as he was building his ark. Those spirits are now in prison. The people that disobeyed. Another interpretation is that Jesus preached during his time in the tomb. You know, the Bible says that he went into the grave and three days later rose from the dead. There are those that preach that during his time in the tomb, he went and preached through his spirit to the fallen angels who left their first position and cohabited with women during the time, human women during the time of Noah. And these spirits are now in prison. Uh, there are those who take Genesis 6 that talks about how the sons of God and, you know, cohabited with women and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and that. The Bible says that those angels who left their first position are now being held in chains until the time of judgment. There are those that say that Jesus, through His Spirit, during the time that He was in the tomb, between His death and His resurrection, uh, went and preached to those spirits who were there in those places. Uh, and then there's others that say that Jesus, during His time in the tomb, went and preached to the wicked people of Noah's day who were in prison, who were in, 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 in Hades, if you will. And the wicked people of Noah's day, He went and preached to them during that time. Now I'm going to be honest with you. For years, I have taught and preached that it was some form of number two or number three. But I've come to realize from context and from wrestling with this, and I even grabbed some of the guys that do research for me and I didn't tell them what I saw. I said, I need you to do me a favor. I want you to tell me what you get out of this. And my two research guys, Tony and Dave, went off and wrestled with it. They came back and excited me because both of them came back and sent me emails or phone calls saying the exact same thing that God showed me for the exact same reason God showed me. Which made me go, thank you Lord. I really believe that what this is saying here from context, and I can show you, is that Jesus was preaching through Noah to the wicked generation of his day as Noah was building the ark. Let me explain what I'm talking about here. In the context we have see, we see here, we see that Jesus, well Peter has been challenging them to do what? To be righteous in the face of suffering. What better example of someone who was faithful to do righteousness and to do what God said in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation, so wicked that God had to destroy the whole world and start over with just Noah and his family. And Noah, as he built that boat, was living righteously in the midst of severe persecution and suffering. And the Bible says that Jesus was preaching through Noah to those people who are now spirits, if you will, who are in prison. The ones who are judged because of their disobedience and their rejection of the gospel. Jesus was preaching through Noah as Noah lived righteously. And look at chapter 4 verse 6. Look at chapter 4 verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Do you see it? Jesus 
is going to preach through you and me, folks, if in the day we live in, we are faithful to be obedient and to live righteously and to not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Jesus, who lives with us, will be presenting to them and they will be held accountable for the gospel that they've heard in word and in deed. And in the context here, Peter is saying, look, it's better for, for if it's God's will for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, through whom He also went and preached to the spirits which are now in prison. And by the way, the, the different translations conduct these sentences or put these, construct these sentences differently. But uh, and, and I'm not so sure I like how the NIV has kind of put it together structurally, but you get the idea... Why in the world is he even bringing up Noah? Because Noah is the example of this type of righteousness in the face of a wicked generation. And Jesus preached through them as he was faithful. As Peter has been saying, be faithful, live righteously, don't repay, do what God said to do. Yeah, the world's bad, but you know what? Noah did it too. And Jesus preached to them and he'll preach through you. Look at chapter 4, verses 12 and following, and tell me that isn't what he's saying here in the full context. We'll break this section down when we get to it later, but let me just read it to you. Dear friends, chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because it is because sorry because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will will become of the ungodly and the sinner. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In the context of all this, what Peter was saying was, Jesus preached through Noah as he was faithful in his day. He'll preach through you as you're faithful in your day. And you know, that makes me feel a lot better because you know what? Even though it says in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell... I don't believe the Bible teaches He descended into hell. See, the Bible says that Jesus on the cross turned to the thief and said, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He didn't say, i got to go down to hell for a few days. He didn't suffer in hell. He experienced hell on the cross. He experienced the separation from the Father on the cross. When Jesus, who had always said, Father, my Father, my Father, my Father, at one point cried out, My God! Why have you forsaken me? Go ahead. Actually, in the Apostles' Creed, it does. Right, right. But it's But remember, he said, today you would be in paradise. But but I'm saying is, but from this passage, there are those, and that's how the Apostles' Creed came about. They think that during that time, Jesus went down and preached to spirits in prison. Well, let me just say to you, first of all, if that is the case, and I don't believe it is anymore. If that is the case, what did he preach? He can't preach salvation. There's only one opportunity to be saved. And after death, you face the judgment. The only thing I could have always, uh, over the years that I thought he was preaching to certain spirits, I used to say that he preached victory. He, he went down and said, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, or something like that. Like, you know, 
But that's not it. That's not it. In the context, it really looks like he was preaching through his same spirit that he rose from the dead. He, that same spirit was preaching through Noah as he lived righteous in his day. Go ahead, dude. If, if he was in Abraham's bosom, and didn't they consider Abraham's bosom and yes, but, divided, but, divided by the chasm? Right, but you have to keep in mind, that was a Jewish understanding. It was never in the Scriptures. Right. There, there's a teaching that, that Hades has two compartments. Right. There's a, let me clarify. There is a teaching. It is not a scriptural teaching. There is a teaching that Hades had two compartments. The abode of the dead, the wicked dead, and the abode of the righteous dead. They called the righteous the, that half of the righteous dead Abraham's bosom or paradise. Uh, and there's a chasm between the two. And we see in Jesus' story of Luke 16 that you know uh, uh, Lazarus woke and was carried, uh, died and was carried in Abraham's room. The rich man woke in Hades. But there's no teaching in the scripture that says that that is the case. There are those who take Ephesians where it says that Jesus led captivity captive. And they they teach that during that time after his death, before his resurrection, he went down and took all of those people that were who were righteous, but they couldn't go into God's presence yet because he hadn't yet died on the cross and he led them free. No, that passage in the context is saying he's taking captives captive. He's not taking free people, you know, he's taking captives captive. And at the same time, nowhere does the Bible say that they had to go in a place of waiting until Jesus died on the cross. God's not bound by time. Abraham was given righteousness the moment he said, I believe you. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. That's part of where the concept of purgatory came from as well. Yes. But again, Luke 16, you see very clearly Jesus, when Lazarus, I mean, the rich man says to, to, to Abraham, tell Lazarus you know, to come cool my tongue, stick his finger in water and cool my tongue. And he said, there's a chasm here. There ain't no passing back and forth. Which, unfortunately for those who believe in purgatory, they think you can get out of there. But again, you've got to base your belief on scriptures. And praise the Lord, He's great, gracious and merciful to me. I've been teaching the wrong thing and I really, God began to open my eyes. This is just simply saying, just as Noah was faithful and Jesus preached through him, He'll be preaching through you if you're faithful. Go ahead. So our soul, immediately. The moment you die, you go to be with the Lord. Instantly, you're with Him now. He's in you and you're swimming in Him. You're in Christ. Okay. You're in the Father, He's in you and you're, you're in Christ already. There's no separation in, at death. But we're having with no more flesh anymore tied to us. Enoch walked with God and was no more. And we know full well that sure appears he was taken into the presence of God. What about Elijah and the chariots of fire just caught up into heaven? He didn't go down to some holding place. So the teaching you're talking about, Duke, has been a teaching that Hades had two compartments, but it's not in the Scriptures. Right. And in the context of Ephesians where it says he led captivity captive, if you really look at it, it's not talking about Jesus loosening all the Old Testament saints who now can go to heaven because Jesus died on the cross. God's not bound by time. The only place Christ said he was going when he was talking to thieves was going to paradise. Going to paradise. Jim, yeah. where are you saying that? That's in, back in Ephesians. And for the sake of time, we need to keep moving here. But there's a passage there that talks about he left captive. And he gave gifts to men. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay. Ephesians chapter 4. Um, I think it's right before the first part of chapter 4. But I'm just curious as to who you're saying those captives are. I'm, I, I think that he, 
in the picture that Paul was using, and again, I'm trying not to get derailed in the time we have here. Let me just say this quickly. In the picture that Paul was using, he was using an analogy of war and victory. And what happened when, it, when an army had won the victory, they would parade all their captives through the street. And then they would give gifts because of the plunder to the people. Paul is saying, Jesus won the victory. He's taken all his enemies captive. And he's giving gifts now to us. And then right after that, it was he, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. And he gave the gifts for the edification of the body and the building up of the church. He's using that picture of when the army defeats the enemy, he takes his captives in a parade and then gives gifts. Jesus has done that for us. He's defeated our enemies and he's given us gifts. That's the context of where we're going. That was your Reader's Digest version. Let's now, yeah, let's go on though because... He then says, though, and I don't know if anybody has caught it tonight, because if you have an NIV, I have been leaving a word out every time that I have read this passage. Let me read it to you again. Verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom He also went and preached to the spirits, I think now in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, the ark, a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Has anybody caught the word that I've left off now three times? No? Well, if I left off only with by accident. The word water. The reason, because the NIV has the word water here, and they've added the water, the word water, because they, they think it helps understand the passage. The word's not there. Read it again. Don't read the word water. Noah, well, sorry, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Not in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this symbolizes baptism that now saves you. They added the word water because they thought it would help with it. And I'm just going to give you a little commercial for where we're going to go next week. We're going to break this down. You see, I think what he's saying here is not only did God use Noah's righteous obedience to preach to those people, the peoples of Noah's day, now in prison, but God also used the flood as a picture of baptism for us. And so what we're going to look at when we get back together next week is what he's saying here and how God was using Noah's righteousness to preach the gospel to those people of their his day. How was he doing that? Noah was believing that God was going to provide for him. Noah was preaching a message that said, judgment is coming. God is going to destroy the world. God is going to judge all the wickedness in this world. He's going to bring judgment. But, he has said, if I would believe, he would give me salvation and spare me. They rejected the message. And they were judged. And Jesus had preached through Noah to the people of that day, those spirits now in prison. But not only that, He saved those eight people through the flood, which is also a picture of baptism, which is a part of our salvation. Now, we're going to wrestle with which it says, which saves you. Wait a minute. I thought we were more saved by works, but we'll get to all that. But for tonight, let me just read this again. Not only did God use Noah's righteous obedience to preach to those people, people of Noah's day, now in prison, but God also used the flood as a picture of baptism for us. And when you start to see how this all unfolds, it's pretty cool. 
But again, it all goes back to another saying that what, what Peter was saying here in this passage was that Jesus preached through Noah to the people of Noah's day. And He wants to preach through you to the people of your day. And God's doing lots of stuff all at once. And we're partakers of it. So let me go for it. Noah built the ark in the middle of the desert and they had never seen like waters before. You were talking about a crazy act of faith. And as Christians, we're talking about Christ's second coming. And everybody's... Uh, yeah, exactly. We look as crazy as Noah did. Yeah. Go ahead, Rick. I was saying, and when I was thinking about the context of that, in the days of Nero, it wasn't going to get better. Mm-mm. And he said, you know, he said, um, you know, to this you were called. And he said, think about Noah and the, was it 100 years or 80 years it took him to build the thing for no reason, no, no logical reason, so that he could make the guilty more guilty. Yep. And then in verse 4 it says, Arm, since Christ suffered, on herself with the same love. You got it. Because we don't know what God's doing. Exactly. So as you see, this passage that has been such a bugaboo for Christians for so many years, if you take the time, actually it's pretty clear. It's no accident Noah's brought out. Jesus was preaching through Noah. He'll preach through you. Be faithful. To this you were called. And think of how, with what you were just saying, kind of piggybacking on that, Rick, think of how stupid it must have seemed for all those people to be willing to just stand there and be put to death because they believed that Jesus was God and that He one day was going to repay them and He's going to judge the world. And everybody of that day thought, you're crazy, just denounce Christ, live free. You know, this Nero guy's not so bad. <laughs> you know? He played music anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they, they had to have believed what God said. That he was that he was sending that to them so they could have the resurrection. That's the only thing they had to hang on to. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I guarantee you, everybody that drowned in the flood wished they had gotten in the ark. And when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, they're going to realize they made the wrong choice. The question for you and I is this: Are you willing to? Keep moving forward in faith. Setting apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Fight the fleshly tendency to think that justice to people that do us wrong needs to be taken care of today. God will take care of it. But aren't you glad that He didn't give you everything you deserve? Pray for them to receive that same mercy. That's how you can bless them. Don't think, well, I'll bite my tongue because one day you'll get yours. No, 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 no. Retaliate with blessing. Say, God has forgiven me. I want you to receive that same forgiveness. We pray for us. Father, again, we thank you for this chance to study your word. And I thank you for the way in which I can see on people's faces that light start to click on. and, and, And we start to see, wow, there's a lot here. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for reminding us and showing us that your word is alive. Thank you that you used me to teach and preach your word when... For many years, I've been teaching it wrong in places and probably still am. But Lord, I thank you for the fact that uh, if anyone's going to hear anything, it's not because Jim said it, it's because you said it and because your word said it and your spirit has brought the insight. 
But Lord, at the same time, I also thank You for the fact that You've called me to this and the joy that I get from using the gifts You've given me. Lord, I don't know what You have in mind. You know all our prayer in this room is that You come get us tomorrow. Or even tonight's good too. But if You choose not to, and we are on this world, are in this world a little bit longer, as we read Your Word, we see it's going to continue to get worse until You come and finish Your plan for Israel and set up that thousand years of your millennial kingdom, and then the after that we'll have the new heaven and the new earth. Lord, there's still a lot left on your timetable and what you want to do for your glory. But you've shown us that in this world things will get progressively worse until that time of the end. And Lord, if you choose to have us live through parts of that before the tribulation begins, we need to take this to heart. Because we've had it kind of easy here in America. And we think persecution is when our friends don't invite us over anymore. Lord, may we understand that there's far more coming if you choose to tarry. It's one thing to read a Bible story and to study Nero. It's another thing to have to live it. And so, Lord, may we begin in the small ways to embrace every trial, endure suffering and hardship as, as a good thing, as discipline. And may we understand that everything that comes to us from you is good. May we not run from it. May we embrace it. And when you choose to relieve the, the tension because you've accomplished your purposes for then, we'll thank you as well and we'll enjoy the time of relief. But Lord, may we not be afraid of your shaping because you're a good God. And we want to stay with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.